0: Williams, a community pharmacist, attempts on multiple occasions to contact Dr. Smith, a primary care physician. She is concerned about some of Dr. Smith's patients who are prescribed high-dose opioids. She has observed his patients appearing over-sedated at the pharmacy, and a few of them have multiple prescribers of controlled substances, as noted on the state prescription drug monitoring program. Because of her concerns, and because she does not receive a call back from Dr. Smith, she is advised by her pharmacy board to contact the State Board of Medicine to report Dr. Smith's concerning opioid prescribing practices. Dr. Smith is notified on multiple occasions that a community pharmacist wants to speak to him about some of his patients who were prescribed opioids. He does not return her calls because he is too busy and sees no reason to discuss his patient's care with the pharmacist. Dr. Smith is then notified by the State Board of Medicine that a case has been opened regarding his opioid prescribing practices over the past year. How could this scenario have been avoided? How can prescribers and pharmacists collaborate to improve patient care? I'm Ilana Hardesty, the host of this special episode of Scope of Pain. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Daniel Alford, a primary care physician and an addiction medicine specialist at Boston Medical Center and on faculty at Boston University School of Medicine and with Dr. Patrick Kelly, a pharmacist on faculty at the University of Rhode Island College of Pharmacy, about how prescribers and community pharmacists can work together to improve the care of patients on opioid therapy for pain. If at any point you want more information, please visit our website at www.scopeofpain.org. There are also resources that accompany the series. Again, find it all at www.scopeofpain.org. Now, let's start at the beginning. Dr. Kelly, who exactly is a community pharmacist and what training do they receive?
1: It's a great question. Pharmacists are highly trained clinical professionals. The pharmacist now goes through six years of formal education at a college or university and they receive a doctorate in pharmacy. And this is the standard of care and has been for the past 20 years. Most pharmacists now in a community setting, they tend to work for larger chains or larger corporations. There's been a movement over the last few decades from smaller independent stores to larger chains. In tandem with that, the practice of pharmacy has changed. In addition to the transactional aspect, the mechanical dispensing of an order to a patient, there are other clinical additions that have occurred as well. Medication therapy management, immunizations, point of care testing, all of this is done in concert with that additional training the pharmacist receives.
2: So Pat, as, as a primary care physician, um, I've written a lot of prescriptions over the years, and. I'm really in the dark about all the steps that a pharmacist goes through before dispensing that medication. Can you go into a little bit more detail?
1: Yeah, of course. I wish it was as easy as putting a label on a box. And a lot of people feel like that's the case, but there's so much more to it. So an order is received, it has to be transcribed. There's that mechanical aspect, translating what the physician actually wrote or e-prescribed now. and then. The next aspect, this is what is the the clinical piece. The pharmacist is going to have to review that order, perform what's called a drug utilization review. Figure out, is this dose appropriate? Is this drug appropriate for the disease state? Are there any drug interactions? For this patient. All of that has to occur before it reaches the patient. And then you have to add on the reimbursement piece. The pharmacy is communicating in real time with a third-party payer seeking reimbursement. So from start to finish, there's a multitude of steps that occur from the mechanical aspect to the clinical aspect that the pharmacist is involved in to the final point of sale or distribution to the patient, and then add on any kind of counseling or discussion that has to occur between the pharmacist and the patient.
0: I'll come back to third-party reimbursement or insurance, because I know that that's a big topic, but let's turn specifically to prescribing dispensing controlled substances. As an example, let's follow a day in the life of an opioid prescription. First, Dr. Alford, what happens in your office before you write that prescription? What do you consider when you prescribe an opioid for pain?
2: Yeah, so I'm always going to try to make a determination about the appropriateness of the opioid for this particular patient's pain. And if it's a new patient, I want some old medical records. I want to talk to the previous provider. I want to know what else has been tried. And if the patient's already on opioids, I want to try to get an assessment of, are they benefiting? And is there any evidence of harm? And if I'm actually going to write that prescription, I want to do an opioid misuse risk assessment by screening for substance use, mental illness, checking the Prescription Drug Monitoring Program, or the PDMP, to verify their controlled substance use history, any other prescribers of controlled substances, I'm going to check a urine drug test. And if I'm going to prescribe opioids for more than three months, if that's the plan, I'll review and have the patient sign a patient prescriber agreement. I also want to think about, you know, what is the patient's insurance, and am I going to need to do a prior authorization for this specific opioid? And certainly, whenever I start an opioid, for a patient who's opioid naive, I'm going to use a short-acting opioid. And and I'll set limits on the prescription, such as no more than three tablets per day. You know, so for a new patient or a patient who has some misuse risk issues, I might initially give a very small supply, maybe like one week, uh, and then monitor them and see how they do.
0: We go into much more detail on all you've mentioned in the Full Scope of Pain activity at www.scopeofpain.org. Okay, so the patient gets to the pharmacy to pick up the medication. What happens before the medication can be handed to the patient? Dr. Kelly, can you walk us through that part?
1: Absolutely. So in this situation of a controlled substance, such as an opioid, there are additional steps that occur. A pharmacist is going to be checking the prescription drug monitoring program, looking at past fill history for this patient, looking for suspicious combinations, duplications in therapy, high doses, early refills, patterns that don't necessarily fit what the standard of care would be. These are things that the pharmacist is looking through and trying to rule out inappropriate use of the substance. Additionally, the pharmacist is going to be sending an insurance claim, just like any other prescription, seeking reimbursement. But the extra layer is the pharmacist is gonna be looking at that patient in front of them, looking for behavioral cues. Is there anything amiss here? Is there anything that is out of the ordinary with the patient's behavior? Is it different than baseline? Um, Is there anything that's worrisome or troublesome, like the case scenario you spoke about earlier?
0: We know that since the opioid crisis, prescribers and pharmacists both worry a lot about their own professional risks when prescribing or dispensing opioids. I wonder if you could both talk about the liability issues you face. Dr. Alford?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's not surprising that clinicians worry about how, when, and whether to prescribe opioids. And this fear of opioid prescribing, among my colleagues, even predates the opioid crisis. You know, prescribers worry about legal sanctions for opioid prescribing, including malpractice liability, you know, if a patient overdoses on your prescription opioid, medical board discipline, just like the case that was presented here, and even criminal convictions. From cases that I've reviewed for our medical board, much of the liability rests with not practicing the standard of care. That's using proper assessments and monitoring strategies. And just overall, poor documentation about why the opioids are being prescribed, and even documentation of some measure of benefit or lack of
1: harm. I hear you loud and clear, Dan. Pharmacists have a very similar liability, and what we refer to that in the pharmacy world is a term called corresponding responsibility. What that means is, although the pharmacist is not the author of the prescription, they're not the ones generating the order, and this is federal language, this is encoded in law the pharmacist has an obligation to ensure that the prescription is written in good faith and in the due course of normal medical practice so this is what's in the back of the pharmacist's mind when they're getting ready to dispense an opioid prescription liability in a clinical context with their Board of Pharmacy, as well as this corresponding responsibility, this legal requirement that's imposed upon them by not just the State Board of Pharmacy, but also the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA. This is all going into play when a prescription is dispensed.
2: Yeah. So Pat, you mentioned determining that the prescription is for a legitimate medical purpose. I mean, how does a community pharmacist do that when you don't even have access to the medical record or medical chart?
1: It's a tough situation. The pharmacist has to make use of what is available to them. Particularly, that's going to be past fill history, insurance claims data if they have that, but the prescription drug monitoring program, looking at that, looking at that patient's fill in the state they reside in, maybe even border states, trying to get a full picture, holistically, of what is going on with this individual. In addition to that, the pharmacist is going to be looking at the patient themselves, looking for behavioral cues that might be worrisome. Is there a pattern of early fills? Is there a pattern of high doses? Is there a pattern of obtaining medications for the same thing from multiple prescribers? All of this can help paint a picture for the pharmacist. Uh, And that's also examining the actual prescription itself. Is there an indication on there? Do we know what we're actually treating? And does this all make sense? Pharmacists are drug experts. They know these medications inside and out. So knowing what we're treating can help a pharmacist figure out, okay, is this product appropriate for the situation at hand?
0: Let's get back to the issue of insurance. These medications can require an insurance prior authorization, or PA as they're referred to. I can imagine that the prescriber may not be aware of the PA requirement, and then the patient shows up at the pharmacy only to find out they're not able to get their prescription. This is surely a setup for an unpleasant interaction at the pharmacy. What does that entail on the pharmacy end?
1: Great. So insurance companies, third-party payers, and prior authorizations, it's an aspect of community practice. A prescription is received by the pharmacy, and prescriptions are transmitted to third-party payers in real time. That's how we find out, at least from the pharmacist, finds out that a prior authorization is necessary. Once that is received by the pharmacist, generally two things are happening. The pharmacist is communicating with the prescriber by phone or fax to say, hey, prescriber, there's some paperwork that you need to complete on your end with the third party payer. Additionally, many pharmacists will inform the patient and tell the patient, hey, this prescription isn't going to be able to be dispensed today because of reimbursement reasons, and you need to either follow up with the prescriber or follow up with the third-party payer yourself. The pharmacist is in a tough spot because they're seeking reimbursement but then their hands are tied when a prior authorization needs to be completed because the pharmacist has no role in filling out that paperwork with the insurance company. That's something the prescriber, unfortunately, has to do themselves. So the pharmacist is more or less ringing the alarm bell saying, hey, prescriber, hey, patient, this is something that needs to get done. And that's why you'll see that communication in both aspects.
2: Okay. So now I understand why it's often the patient who gets through to me because they're the ones who are highly motivated to get this prescription filled. And you know, oftentimes I'm not hearing from the pharmacist or the insurance company. And actually in our practice, we've actually had to set up a whole separate system to address the, the paperwork to obtain these PAs. And unfortunately, it's often the patient who suffers by being without their medication and kind of waiting for the whole PA process to take place. And I'm wondering, Pat, if if there's a way that a patient can get some of their opioid prescription filled while this whole PA process is being taken, because obviously we know that some patients who are on chronic opioids are going to be physically dependent, and we certainly want to avoid opioid
1: withdrawal. Absolutely. So in a case with prior authorizations, there's two main kinds. One, there's a prior authorization prior to even initiating a prescription. The insurance company is saying, hey, prescriber, you need to justify the medical necessity of this before we pay for it. And in that situation, the patient hasn't been on it yet. So there's not as much of a clinical concern with withdrawal, right? That's more so a delay in care. You're waiting two, three days for that claim to go through. However, prior authorizations, once they are obtained, many prescribers probably know this, maybe in a six-month or 12-month interval, that PA expires. And you have to go through the process again. And that's where, Dan, you mentioned the concern for discontinuing therapy and withdrawal or a manifestation of the underlying disease in that patient. Because they're coming to the pharmacy and the pharmacy saying, oh, the insurance isn't paying for this. We need a prior authorization. And then you have that two, three-day window where, hey, I don't have a paid claim, but this patient needs the medicine. I can't pull the rug out from underneath them, and then they're gonna go through withdrawal. So the pharmacist generally has latitude, has professional discretion, and a reasonable and prudent pharmacist would not stop therapy for that reason because it's a reimbursement issue. You still have a lawful order to substantiate dispensing the drug, It's more so you may not get reimbursed right away. So in that situation, a reasonable and prudent pharmacist would continue giving a couple days worth of that medicine to the patient while the paperwork is filled out in the background because it's a reimbursement, not an actual legal issue.
2: So would a pharmacist ask a patient to pay in cash while the PA is being processed?
1: They could. If a PA has been approved in the past... Generally, it will most likely be approved again once it expires. So you really wouldn't ask a patient to pay cash, especially if the cost of the medication is very high, expecting that this medicine is going to be approved in several days. So that's generally not the customary practice. Could it happen? Sure. But generally, no, you wouldn't do that. You would continue giving the medicine to hold them over. And then once the paperwork goes through, you'll get reimbursed.
0: In the end, the goal is to help the patient by providing pain management and by keeping them as safe as possible from the risks of these medications. We talked a bit about the path a prescription takes from the clinical office to the pharmacy. Now let's talk a little bit more about how to make that happen as efficiently as possible. Dr. Kelly, how can the prescriber help you, help the pharmacist, with the job of filling an opioid prescription?
1: Right, there's a few things a prescriber can do, including a diagnosis or indication on a prescription so the pharmacist knows exactly what we're treating, because that plays into the clinical appropriateness of the drug. Additionally, on a prescription, there tends to be room in the comments field or the notes field. So you have to think about what's going through a pharmacist's head. What's this medicine being used for? Why is this medicine being used in this specific person? Those are the questions that are going through a pharmacist's head. And if there's ever a situation where someone necessitates a high dose or a peculiar regimen that's outside of the standard labeling, having some kind of information on that prescription, acknowledging that, basically it's communication. That's what it comes down to. The prescriber, in a way, letting the pharmacist know, this is what's going on. Because of that corresponding responsibility, a pharmacist is tuned in for Is this prescription written in good faith, due course of medical practice? Should I be dispensing this? There's a litany of questions that go through a pharmacist's head, a differential, if you will, for is this a situation of diversion? And having an indication on there, a diagnosis code, an upper limit, maybe language about This prescription should be refilled no sooner than. Having a set schedule for refills to cut down on those questions and concerns that a pharmacist would have. And ultimately that would save phone calls and communication to the prescriber who's very busy and it saves time for the patient. Because if those questions are satisfied, if that pharmacist can feel comfortable that, yes, this is for a legitimate reason and a legitimate medical need, there's no delay in care. They don't have to wait an hour until that pharmacist can confirm this information with the prescriber, especially if it can just be very quickly jotted on the prescription or included in the comments field on that e-prescription.
0: Dr. Kelly, specifically around opioid prescribing, The collaboration between the pharmacist and the prescriber seems particularly important in many ways. Can you talk a little bit more about what that collaboration can do and how it helps the patient?
1: Of course. So having good communication between the prescriber and the pharmacist can help facilitate better clinical care. We have to think about how the pharmacist and the prescriber, they have the same clinical aim. Understanding what each party is doing in the common care of the patient. The pharmacist understanding what the prescriber is looking at. The prescriber understanding what the pharmacist is looking at. We're seeing the patient at two different points in time. And we're involved in two different processes in the same common care of the patient. Our goals are aligned. It's just that we're doing different parts of the process. So key communication between the two individuals will help facilitate the process, prevent delays in care, and also help screen for clinically inappropriate combinations, drugs, doses, uses of medications.
0: Dr. Kelly, you mentioned a very interesting point. The community pharmacist sees the patient at another point in time, very different from the prescriber. Can you talk about what information you might glean, and are there pieces of that that it might be important for the prescriber to understand? Of
1: course. So the prescriber sees the patient in one situation when they're in the office. The pharmacist is potentially seeing a patient multiple times, whereas a prescriber may see them once every three months or every six months or maybe even every year. A pharmacist might be seeing a patient daily, weekly, multiple times in a single day in some situations. So you're seeing beyond just that one snapshot. You're seeing patients at multiple points in time and you're seeing in almost real time how they may be responding to that medication. Whereas the prescriber will authorize the order and then reassess at a later point, the pharmacist is seeing multiple data points, multiple instances and seeing how someone might be responding to a medication. So Pat, I
2: can imagine as a community pharmacist that you might witness some worrisome behaviors like over sedation, How is a pharmacist trained to deal with this? I mean, I can imagine that there's a real emphasis focus on preventing any kind of commotion at the pharmacy. But then again, you don't want to dispense a medication that may cause the patient harm. So how do you balance that, trying to maintain order at the pharmacy but also not dispensing a medication that you're worried about?
1: That's a tough question, Dan. And there's no textbook answer there's no formalized training on how to deal with worrisome behavior. Why? Because worrisome behavior can encompass a wide range of things. So, in that situation you described, you have someone who appears to be impaired, oversedated, you know, it's something where you have to parse out and understand is this this patient's baseline behavior? Is this something new? Is it a pattern? How severe is it? So you're doing kind of almost a clinical assessment to find out what is going on here. And when we deal with that worrisome behavior, you have to think in the back of your head, I'm going to be dispensing a product that could make the situation worse. Although I have a lawful order and this patient may need the medicine, what is going on in this acute instance? Is it clinically appropriate right now? And that's very tough to deal with. It's tough to say no in these situations because there is this sense or feeling of, hey, I have someone who authored a prescription, they're expecting me to dispense it, but I have additional information here that changes the dynamic. It may not be reasonable or prudent to give this medicine out. You have to think about what's it going to do to this person who's already appearing oversedated or impaired. Are they gonna overdose? Are they going to be able to even get home Think about people are driving to and from pharmacies. These are all things that are going through a pharmacist's head when these situations happen. They are rare, they don't happen frequently, but when they do, it can be somewhat jarring because there is no manual you can open up to to say, oh, what do I do if someone seems oversedated sedated or impaired? It's not there. So it takes practice, it takes training, and, and a little bit of professional judgment when you make these decisions.
0: And in the end, I think it sounds like your decisions are facilitated when you get more information from the prescriber. We've had a great deal of food for thought today, and I appreciate the information we've received from both of you. Before we close out, Dr. Alford, can you give us a summary of the many issues that we've discussed today?
2: Sure. I mean, certainly in my role as a primary care physician who manages a lot of patients with acute and chronic pain, I I now really appreciate the importance of communicating with my community pharmacist, Um, again, keeping the patient at the center so that we avoid any disruptions in their care, but also that we don't cause any harm with these medications. So I appreciate this second set of eyes in different points in time where the patient is being observed. I think it's important that we cultivate kind of a working relationship, between a primary care physician and a pharmacist, but set up systems so that we can efficiently respond to each other's calls. We're all busy doing more than a full-time job, I'm sure. And so we need to create systems to enhance this two-way communication. And more specifically, I think adding information to the actual prescription seems like it can save everybody a lot of time and and angst around these prescriptions. And again, keep the patient safe, which is the ultimate goal for treating patients with chronic pain.
0: Thank you again, Dr. Alford and Dr. Kelly for joining us today. Scope of Pain was developed in collaboration with our national partners, the Council of Medical Specialty Societies and the Federation of State Medical Boards. This educational activity is supported by an independent educational grant from the Opioid Analgesic Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy, or REMS, program companies. Remember, to follow up on any of the material you heard today, please visit our website at www.scopeofpain.org. I'm your host, Ilana Hardesty. Thank you for listening.